0: sitting around the campfire i don't know i don't know why there's a campfire in my hangar <laughs> that's that's pretty scary <laughs> go ahead and take the speed up your number one now Runway on like land green dot Welcome nice guys guys hello and welcome to the green dot EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation the green dot sponsored by ge aviation I'm Hal Bryan. I'm EAA's editor, senior editor, that is, for print and digital content and publications. And over there across the table,
1: Tom Charpentier, EAA Government Relations Director.
0: And uh, Tom, we have a guest with us uh, in person, uh, live, and in the flesh. Uh, why don't you uh, tell everybody who's uh, sitting there next to you?
1: Yeah, so today's uh, guest is Vic Syracuse. He's the chair of EAA's Homebuilt Aircraft Council, the HAC. Uh, and uh, he and I have actually been working together uh, throughout the past two days as part of EAA's um, Winter Summit, uh, the Recreational Aviation Summit with the FAA, which is kind of, along with AirVenture, two of our big touch points with the FAA's uh, senior leadership. It's, uh, it's a really, really great opportunity to, to hash out policy, and uh, this year was no different. It was a, it was a great event. And Vic was uh, very much part of that, he, his, um, his opinions and, uh, and his expertise were vital in a lot of the discussions that we had. Uh, so, um, so, Vic, you're a very valuable member of the team, and uh, welcome to the Green Dot. Thanks,
2: Tom, Yeah, Glad to be here.
0: Well, it's really good to have you, and, uh, and we're always glad to have people with opinions. So they make the best guess, in my opinion. <laughs> See? <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, and, uh, Vic, you uh, you and I have been working together, if, if, uh, if a bit uh, Remotely, uh, since you have joined uh, our publications team as a columnist for Sport Aviation Magazine, starting this uh, past January,
2: I'm really honored and excited to do that. Thanks.
0: It's it's been uh, terrific, and you know you had a, a, a great following at uh, at Kitplanes uh, uh, over their run for many many years by uh, by our buddy Paul Die, and uh, but we're really excited uh, to uh, to have you sort of in the in the Sport Aviation family. and I know the. Uh, the initial feedback uh, has been terrific so great to have uh, great to have you aboard and and um, great to talk to anybody who's uh, involved in so many different aspects of EAA you two guys uh, Tom you mentioned in the intro you've been working together through this uh, this winter summit and uh, you know I'm sitting upstairs doing other things while that's going on I have a I have a general awareness but why don't you tell me a little bit more about, uh, about what goes on in the summit, uh, Vic? Maybe tell us about what your role is.
2: Yeah, so uh, one, I'm just honored to be there, and I nice said Tom didn't accuse me of making the meeting any longer than it needed to be, so thanks there, Tom. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the exciting thing is uh, that I see, you know, over the past three or four years, this this absolute willingness for the FAA to listen to the EAA leadership team on on very important things that are affecting our membership, things right down to operating limitations for amateur-built airplanes. That's top of mind for our members out there these days, and they actually work with the people that uh, write those up and allow us to do input and make changes.
0: You know, it does seem to me to be, to be powerful. And is it – would you both say it's unusual uh, that uh, – that we're, we're sort of able to, to get the F.A. to come to us and sit down and have these, uh, these face-to-face meetings. It seems like when you consider a, a typical um, something more akin to a lobbying scenario, you think, well, you go to Washington and you bang on the doors until somebody listens. But, but they come here and sit down sit down with us for uh, what two three days.
2: Yeah, and the fact that they come here when it's 8 degrees outside <laughs>
1: <laughs> well we do that on purpose so that they can't so that their uh, their bosses can't say that they're on some kind of junket, you know, uh to Vegas or something. But um but Hal, I think uh, one of one of the big uh, strengths that EA has, um, you know, the the other uh, alphabet organizations do a ton of of really great work, and they're in DC, uh, obviously based there on a regular basis, and and we do have representation there ourselves with Doug McNair. Sure, um, but one of a uniqueness that is our strength at EAA is that we're not in DC we're here in Oshkosh um, which means that when we want to have one of these kind of touch point they come on to our turf meetings it really is kind of an event um, and it's it's done. Um, in kind of this this concentrated way of a of a day and a half meeting, where uh, they hop on flights and come into uh, to Wisconsin in February, uh, we put together a full day and a half agenda with um, you know with briefing papers and in a, a fully you know we we work on this for months in advance, getting getting all of this ready, and then we also have all of the um, all, all of the the leads in the same room. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about uh, airport policy or if we're talking about flight safety or if we're talking about uh, operating limitations for amateur built aircraft, everybody Um, whether they have a hand in it or not, is around the table offering up their views on it. Uh, And particularly for the interdisciplinary topics, you know, things like Mosaic, you know, a giant rulemaking project. It's great to, you know, not necessarily be in the office of one particular department, but have those folks come to us and and all be around the conference table.
0: Sure. So now, uh, Vic, uh, we're looking back now. the summit as we're recording this has just concluded, correct? We've just wrapped it up. Vic, was there, uh, you mentioned operating limitations. Were, were there any other particular highlights of the summit this year for you?
2: Yeah, the neat thing about the last day and a half, as Tom said, we've got the real people here who can actually listen and then say, yeah, we can change that, as opposed to, thank you for your input. We're going to go back and see what can be done. And that ranged everywhere from talking about grass field operations. Which was kind of a minor nit, all the way up to future policies that may be coming out in the next four or five years that are actually going to change, you know, have a real good impact. I think very positively on on amateur built aviation. So it's everything from fixing things to policy making way out in the future, and we've got the leadership of both sides in the room agreeing on what's going to happen.
0: That really is uh, that really is terrific, and I, um, you know, when you go back through our magazine archives. or you, you know, you think back, uh, sort of I can personally think back conversations with Paul, uh, right when I started here, uh, when he founded the organization, um, that was, that was a, a core philosophy from the beginning is, is, you know, we're not going to just sit here and fold our arms and, and, you know, and grouse about the bureaucrats in Oklahoma city. You know, we're going to figure out how to work with them and how to educate them. Uh, and you know, I, Certainly, we don't get every single thing we want, but uh, but we've had some we've had some enjoyable successes over the years, and I think um, I, I think EAA members uh, uh, should be proud of the the strong working relationship that we have with the FAA.
2: Yeah, I, I, I would add just a little bit to that. Hal, and you're dead on, and I call it. Uh, I've actually uh, when I speak to the homebuilt council and even family members and fellow pilots, when I go back, the collaborative atmosphere. Yeah. That is in this room and, and all the meetings that I've had the honor of participating with is totally different than most pilots' perception of the FAA. Sure. I mean, they are there to actually, they have the same objective that we have in mind, and that's to uh, promote aviation, not figure out a way to stifle it. Right. And there aren't any us and they conversations in in this room, this meeting, ever. It, uh, the first time I was there, it was amazing to me, and it just keeps repeating year after year. and Actually, we do it twice a year and and they always take things back and act upon them and come back and they either tell us why they can't, as, you know, that we do have, we do report to a, a Congress. Okay? <laughs> and, uh, but most of the time it's, yeah, we, we can fix this or we can change that. It's very, very collaborative.
1: And this is our 14th uh, Winter Summit um, wow. this year. So, you know, um, they're, you know, every year we get high- level executives. I mean literally people, somebody who reports to somebody who reports to the FA administrator. Um, you know th- that's that's the level of executives that we're getting at these meetings. I mean th- these are people who don't just have oversight of general aviation. they have oversight of commercial aviation, which is obviously a uh, uh, not the uh, not the most comfortable assignment right now with the 737 max issues going on and, and other things. Um, and they take the time to come to Oshkosh again in February when it's eight. Uh, because no. they, want to, come here. they <laughs> right. want to come here, they want to come um, here. They want to to do positive things uh, for general aviation and hear what the stakeholders have to say. Uh, so I think it's uh, as as my boss Sean says always says it's ours to lose. You know, we, we have to continually um, uh, present a productive agenda for them. Uh, but we are uh, we're we're just very um, humbled by the uh, by by the uh, uh, the willingness of these guys to uh, to work with us uh, so closely.
0: That really is uh, that really is something remarkable, and I, it, it does appear to be pretty uh, pretty unique. Yeah. Oh. All right. Well, let's uh, maybe shift gears just a little bit, and uh, um, I'm sure we'll touch back on other other summit topics. But um, I, let's do what uh, something I always love to do, and that is. Uh, uh, Vic, I want to get uh, get a sense of your aviation background, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, you're a new columnist of ours. And let's help people get to know you a little bit. So do you have a first aviation memory? Were you an airplane guy as a kid? Any aviation in your family, that kind of thing?
2: You know, there wasn't any in my family, although I have vague recollections of my dad taking me out to the airport when I was very, very young watching airplanes take off and land. But uh, probably the first time it had any impact was on a uh, third-grade Christmas gift exchange. The person next to me got a model airplane, and I got a puzzle. <laughs> and I'll never forget his name. It was John Kelly And I could see he was all frustrated with this model airplane. And I looked at him. I said, John, want to trade? And we both went home so excited. Really? <laughs> yep.
0: So, okay, so we don't have to worry about John coming after you at this point. I don't and saying, think so. John is, is happy at the Experimental Puzzle Association right now. John <laughs> Kelly's right. just putting things together, taking them apart. That's really, do you remember what type of airplane it was, the model?
2: I think it was a Vought Skyraider. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: That's uh, wow, that's pretty cool.
2: And I couldn't and, wait. My dad worked a uh, night shift, and I couldn't wait for him to come home that night. I was allowed to stay up and wait for my dad to come home and show it to him. So it oh, wow. was kind of neat. wow
0: so that uh that sort of set you on the on the path that was third grade then what what happens next when did you when did you start uh, you know getting involved
2: well you know probably like uh I don't know maybe a good high very high percentage of our members who move on to back then it was line control airplanes sure and uh, my dad managed to somehow get me a Cox P51 line control airplane. <laughs> uh, I think that was 5th grade. Oh, so excellent. Uh, that's where that's where the noise making started. The noise making. Right.
0: Yeah, I had the uh, I had the PT19 and then the the Pitts. Yeah. As as well. We just did a story about a, a Pitts in sport aviation that's painted to look like the old Cox q control and that was that was a fun airplane to write about but definitely a, a formative thing for all of us. So so you did your your control line stuff then uh, did, did you do the RC route or what
2: uh No back then RC was very prohibitively expensive. So it was basically line controls, you know, they got bigger and they went from the plastic Cox models to the balsa so build them yourself. Right. No ARFs back then. Yeah.
0: Build them yourself, repair them yourself. Exactly. After yep. <laughs> after yep. one too many loops or or whatever.
2: Exactly. And then and then from there it went on to full scale airplanes in the u.s air force oh terrific spent some time there working avionics u2 c-130s and uh, learned to fly down at the aero club wow
0: well thank you for your service
2: oh you're welcome
1: so how'd you um how'd you first get involved with uh with eaa uh were you involved with a chapter um uh, when you were younger or um where'd that come from
2: No, I know if I think back to my first touch on EAA was uh, I started building an RV-4. That was something I always wanted to do since I was a kid, and I saw uh, probably a teeny two or something on the cover of a Mechanics Illustrated. Wow, you can build bigger airplanes. (laughs) And so uh, I think I was 25, I started building an RV-4 and uh, went and visited the local chapter. Uh, It was quite a bit different back then, quite honestly. It wasn't quite as welcoming to youth. It was more of an, an... Older Gentleman's Club, <laughs> and uh, they seemed to want to sit around and talk more than they did want to build, and uh, I wanted to build. So one or two visits, I just stayed at home and spent that time building as opposed to going to uh, build chapters. And uh, first time at uh, Air Venture was uh, 1981, when I came here after I'd already started building the RV4 and got my first ride with Dick Van Grunsen in the RV4. Wow.
0: That's... That's a a great introduction. What was it led you to the uh, RV to begin with? The the first of many RVs, actually.
2: Yeah, you'll get a kick out of this. So, like every person trying to build their first airplane, you're on a budget and trying to figure things out. And so, I'm trying to look at what some of the cheaper airplanes were to to build. And uh, the one that was out there at the time, I think, was a Monet model. And uh, I realized I didn't have welding skills. So uh, the next thing I know, we're sitting at the dinner table one night and Private Pilot Magazine came and there was an RV4 on the cover doing a loop. And I made a comment at dinner to my wife that I, I'd really like to build an airplane someday. And her words were, well, it'd be nice if you quit talking about it. <laughs> so that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> okay, The order was in the mail the next day.
0: I love that woman. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Oh, that's that is terrific.
1: Just out of curiosity, um, the uh, RV four you got a ride in from uh, from Dick was that the prototype?
2: Yes, it's the one in that's the, one the museum. museum right now. Wow. Yes,
1: so that was the first RV you ever yeah. got a ride in was the one that's, yeah. uh, that's in the RV display.
2: So you do have to point out how old I am. That's <laughs> 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 there's a lot of airplanes that I worked <laughs> on are now in museums or I flew in. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: <laughs>
2: oh my goodness.
0: So. Uh, <clears throat> How long did it take you to build that first RV for? And what was that experience like?
2: Uh, so I kind of didn't know what I was doing. I'd been building Heathkits for a good part of my life. Oh, you know, you start on page one and yep. on page 10, you've got something. And uh, so uh,
0: Building like radios, TVs? Yeah, everything
2: up to color TVs. Okay.
0: Did you ever build the weather station, the big Kit weather station? No, I didn't do that. My dad and I did that together. It that's was one of cool. the only, only father-son thing, projects like that hands-on that we did. and That was a lot of fun. That, yeah. I, I miss those Kit days.
2: Me anyway. too. I still have my oscilloscope and I oh. use it once in a while. That's that's very cool. Uh.
0: Just when you want to look like a bond villain or something. Yeah, right? exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so uh well back to I think you asked me about uh I'm trying to remember the question, sorry.
0: Just, just, uh what was the question? What was the how, how long it took oh, yeah. it to get that, through the RV That's
2: for a good one because here yeah. I am, this twenty five year old kid, and again it was an old guy's club and uh I, I, I've always been one. Once you start, you keep going and you get it done. And uh, so I kept calling and pestering Van, hey, when's the next kit coming? So I started out as serial number 239 and ended up being the 12th one finished. About, wow. uh, I think it was about 22 months later, 24 months later, maybe. It was the first RV4 at Sun and Fun and the first okay. one east of the Mississippi River. So it was a lot of fun.
0: What do you remember about that first flight of the first airplane you built?
2: It was uh, reminds me of here a little bit, in that it was on a New Year's Eve in Cleveland, Ohio, and it was minus 10 degrees. Oh my gosh. <laughs> So we all know what kind of performance the RVs have, but when you're in an RV4 with only, I think I had 10 gallons of fuel in it, and it was minus 10, you can imagine how that thing climbed.
0: I say, so about 10,000 feet a minute. uh, (laughs) I was was, hanging on. You're at the service ceiling, and Um, you're not supposed to need oxygen during phase one flight testing, as I remember. um,
2: Very hilarious. So we have a, a, a VHS tape, Tom. You probably looked that up in the library. But, uh, I VHS VHSs uh, as a kid. Oh, okay, so uh, it's funny here. It is. It's minus ten degrees outside, and I land, and the family's all around, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on cloud nine. I'm so excited and everything. And in the video, you can see everybody else kind of standing around, freezing, <laughs> shivering. <laughs> and my wife finally says, "Can we go inside?" You know. And, well, you're square-jawed yeah.
0: and ten feet tall, yeah. and having uh, just mastered uh, yeah. mastered your role as test pilot. What did you fly to get ready to to Get comfortable in the RV for him. You had the ride in the other RV, but did you? Was there another airplane you flew to get tailwheel skills uh, sharp and all that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, I had a lot of ratings at that time, including I was doing uh, tailwheel instruction. Oh, terrific! But uh, as a good practice, uh, there was a, a friend on the field, and he had a decathlon. So that very morning, I went up first with him and did three takeoff and landings, Excellent. just to make certain. Oh, that's no transition training back then. Right.
1: Which is something we're trying to change right now. We right. talked about that quite a bit today.
0: Yeah, no transition team and no second
1: pilot. No additional pilot program. Yeah, no Lotas. Uh, no. no, no EA flight test manual.
2: Uh, so. None of that. Now, <laughs> yeah,
0: but but they had electricity in things, Tom. I mean, it wasn't okay. it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> Try to, you know, he is our guest. Okay.
1: <laughs> so Vic, um, uh, after the after the four, uh, what did you go on to uh, to build?
2: Uh, So uh, when I I had the four for probably I think three years or so, and I basically had a four place family, Mm -hmm. so it got to be not a whole lot of fun having this two place airplane. And about that time, a Prescott Pusher uh, came into being, and they came to Oshkosh with a lot of splash. And unfortunately, I got caught up in that real splash. And again, uh, I was the first one to actually finish the Prescott Pusher. Mm It did manage to fly it here to Oshkosh uh, the first year we finished it. But, uh, you know, a number, a number of other people behind me, uh, you know, came to demise in that aircraft. It was uh, not represented very well. Right. And so uh, we realized at that time the best thing to do for a four-place airplane was probably uh, rent or have partners. And uh, so I built another two-place airplane, a Kit Fox. And uh, most of the time you're flying by yourself anyway or with one other family member. And then uh, we, we, uh, we had partners in a 182 and then a Bonanza. So that filled the four-place niche for a while until I was could convince uh, Dick Van Grunsen to do an RV-10, which took about 10 to 12 years.
0: <laughs> and so uh, you're saying that uh, that – the RV 10 exists just to shut you up? Is that, uh...
2: <laughs> well, I will tell you this. Yeah, you weren't alone. <laughs> I came to Air Venture, I think it was 1996, and after pestering Van every year for however many years, my wife and I were probably 20 feet from his booth, and he sees us coming up, and he points right at us and says, All right, I'm going to do one. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
1: That's excellent. And uh, you also, um, in, I mean, obviously, in addition to the aircraft that you've built, you've, um, you've test flown, um, you know, many aircraft. You've done pre on many aircraft. You're also a DAR as well. Designated an yes. airworthiness representative for the FAA uh, signing off aircraft. Uh, but one in particular that, uh, that I, we all have some connection with is the one-week wonder, uh, the RV-12IS that we built at AirVenture uh, in, uh, in 2018. You did the, uh, the first flight on that.
2: I did that was fun, so I'm always have an emotional connection to that aircraft. Matter of fact, at lunch, I was just explaining that to a couple of your new hires here. Um, go take make, take advantage of the flying club you have here and then rv12 is special
1: i was just flying it on sunday oh good yeah, for you yeah good for you uh and uh, john egan and i uh, we were part of the uh, the west coast tour of the aircraft uh, a couple months ago so we got to fly it from uh from phoenix uh all the way back to oshkosh wow
0: neat that's right you picked up after david and serena dropped it off so yep, that's right that was a that was a terrific thing getting that airplane out there and, and showing it off to chapters and
1: and you flew it, uh, that was literally the Monday after AirVenture, right? It was. That's so correct. It was done on Sunday, flown on Monday.
2: Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and we flew it Monday evening. It was a postcard day.
0: And you've got uh, that smile on your face. If You know, we did the short video about it. smile on your face, I think, says it all, that uh, the airplane worked.
2: <laughs> uh, it was neat seeing that get completed in a week here, and, and the enthusiasm, not only the you know the vans crew that was here making that happen but all the all the members that came by and did something all week long was just fantastic i thought
0: yeah that's something i, I charlie becker really deserves a a, a good uh, pat on the back for working so hard to bring that program or that concept back because uh you know we did it in uh, uh, 75 or so, somewhere back in their mid 70s, with uh, with a Zenair, and I think it was technically a nine day wonder uh, with Chris Heinz. But then Charlie brought it back uh, in 2014 with 14, the, the- uh, working with Sebastian Heinz and doing the uh, the Zenith, uh, the 750 Cruiser, and then coming back again a couple of years later with the uh, the RV12. Um, I think it's just drives the point home that said look these this can be done this is possible you know you watched it even if he didn't come up and pull a rivet you walked by it every day for a week and you watched it go from a crate to an airplane
1: Vic, here's a question um so obviously the the rv12 is is a very very complete kit um yeah i think it's match drilled the final size yes. and basically just goes goes together straight out of the box um What's the di- how much of a leap is there between the the RV four you built you know back uh, back in the eighties and the uh, the RV twelve today in terms of the sophistication of the kit? Could you possibly have done that with the RV four?
2: No, we joked at that time that uh, Van actually shipped us bauxite, <laughs> okay, and, uh, and you've got to you refine know, that into we aluminum. we made it into <laughs> aluminum, and then we figured out how to build an airplane. And uh, it's funny how when we were talking about Heath kits, so this uh, when that tail kit showed up that I ordered and opened it up. uh, There was just aluminum in there, sheet and bar stock. And interestingly enough, there weren't any instructions or blueprints. And I thought, are you supposed to figure this out yourself? (laughs) Boy, I'm in over my head. And uh, a quick call to a van over a landline, Tom. We used to have to wait till 9 p.m. to afford the calls ah, that's true. out of state. yeah <laughs> okay.
0: long-distance rates. And,
2: and I, explained, oh, I explained to Dick that uh, I didn't get any blueprints, and so he mailed those out, and they showed up. And I was so excited. I got out page one, like we would do for the Heath Al, yeah. and uh, I couldn't find any parts on page one in the box. Oh, and I must have spent an hour, and my wife's looking over my shoulder, and I'm wondering how am I going to explain? I we just made a bad decision here, <laughs> you know. And finally, I don't know how much later it was, but I realized on on blueprint page eight, I, it showed me how to make the parts that I needed on blueprint page, <laughs> one. page one. Okay, and I spent the next probably three weeks, literally with a hacksaw and a vice, <laughs> cutting a lot of parts today that come pre-punched in the kits. Uh, making those parts such that I could begin to build you know spars and stuff on the horizontal stabilizer if, so it's substantially today it's more of an assembly project yeah okay yeah. much like Heath kits if sure. in, in the blue and the plans are that way blueprints aren't even shipped anymore and and so it's very easy to get a one a more consistent quality product out the back end
0: well it really is is remarkable how much uh, simpler. Everything's gotten how much more straightforward. I mean, certainly Frank Christensen, Kristen Eagle, uh, played a big role in, you know, in giving you everything you needed and, you know, and those, what, four feet of binders, step-by-step instructions, all that kind of of stuff. Those of
2: us building RVs at the time were very jealous of the (laughs) Christian builders. I (laughs) I can only
0: imagine. I've got, uh, somewhere in my collection, I've got a couple of older, uh, uh, like well before my time. So super, super old Tom. Um, I don't know why that's recurring gag now, but I like it. Uh, uh, model airplanes by a company, I think it was called Marecraft. And um, like one of them is uh, one of my all-time favorites, a little belanca Cruise Air. And it's got a uh, nice little box, nice, you know, great box art, everything else. And it's not so much instructions, but it's got plans. And the kit itself is, honest to God, just a block of wood. And the implied instructions are, take this block of wood and make it look like the thing in the plans. And it's like a knife, a sandpaper. I don't even know where to, well, we know where I'd start. So we actually just, uh, we have that displayed unassembled because I don't, I don't stand a chance of turning That's that cool. into something. Those. But yeah. But the, as you said, um, you know, as far RV just shipped you a solid block of bauxite and just the key is to take away the parts that you don't need. Yes. And then what's left is an airplane. There you go. That's you know, useful advice.
1: And, and Vic, you know, obviously being on the home bill council, you, you know, you're, obviously involved in this conversation but you, you know there is definitely a huge um reward factor to uh, to doing you know a, a a more involved build you know i we were um i, I had a bunch of uh, of, of uh, staffers um in the hangar uh, a couple of weeks ago we were working on our uh, we're working on a Cessna 150 restoration right now and we needed to uh, recut uh, an aluminum piece for the floor pans and um you know we took out the uh, the bandsaw and the um and the tin snips and the and the and the break the the the, the to bend the and the shears and and uh, you know uh, formed this piece out of a what was just a flat sheet of aluminum. It's just kind of a kind of it's almost a um, it's a very rewarding thing to you know to see some shape come out of such uh, such very simple materials. Sure.
2: I, oh, I agree, Tom, and I think that's what uh, unfortunately some builders lose sight of. It's the journey. Yeah, we get sometimes too caught up, and I've got to get this airplane built and done, and it can become a job or a burden as opposed to the enjoyment that you just talked about.
0: Well, I think I think that's a really interesting point because you know we talk about uh, you know as an organization we want people excited about building, we want building to be accessible, we want building to be uh, an affordable and reasonable way to get into aviation, get into flying. Um, so certainly the, you know, the mainstream kits have gotten so much more straightforward and so much easier, which I, I think is nothing but a wonderful thing. But I'm still just blown away at how many scratch builders we have out there, how many people can just just buy a set of plans and then, you know, and then start going to the hardware store and coming back with materials and just turning this flat piece of paper in, you know, into, uh, into a living, breathing airplane.
2: I agree. I'm in awe with some of them. And some of the, the, the um, examples you see at Air Venture. And you see that they are scratch built, like wow, I mean they are true, true builders. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I, I I um just a couple of weeks ago dropped in on uh, on Charlie Becker and John Egan who yes. are uh, who are scratch building. Uh, I guess we can call them uh, cub clones. Uh, sorry, Piper, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they, they're um uh it's really neat. First of all, they're both. Amazing craftsmen, great welders. Um, also, you know, um, John in particular has quite a bit of engineering background.
0: And just quickly, Tom, for those who may not know, of course, both yeah. of them on staff here, uh, John heading up our, our chapters uh, the chapters part of the organization.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and Charlie being uh, obviously having a full oversight of, uh, of our home building programs and uh, oversight of the uh, Home Build Council, which you yeah. sent on, Vic. Um, but, uh, yeah, what's really neat about what they're doing is they both have a vision for the aircraft they want to build. And there is just so much of uh, personalization and and their own footprint that goes or uh, you know uh, fingerprints on that airplane. Um, you know, John wants a very very simple airplane, so he's building it you know with an intentionally very clean panel and no flaps and you know just kind of a. Uh, I think he's modeling it after like the the very early production runs of the PA eighteen. Whereas Charlie wants a little bit more sophistication and stuff like that, I think he's doing a, a, a doors on both sides and 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 that kind of thing. And it's uh, it, it's it's really neat to see those builds come together. It's not something you know um, that you see a ton of in the home building community these days. But like like Hal said, we we still have a lot of scratch builders out there.
2: Yeah, and you know it's interesting. We still use the term builders for them, and 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 the ones that I've seen, they're more like artisans. I've been there to see Charlie's. And, and the welding, the, the, it's, it's just an artist. Um, I had the opportunity one year as a DAR to go license a Pitts that had been completely scratch built. Wow. And the pride that this, that this builder, artist and I call him, I mean, the entire airplane, when I went to see it, was wrapped in paper. You don't want anybody touching it, you know? oh rightfully so. It was just a Goodness. gorgeous piece of workmanship, you know, and I, I felt sorry for him for the first day he was going to get a bug on it. <laughs> right? It was truly a work of art, yeah. you know, and and, and and they fly like what they look. It's it's quite neat. And they truly understand their airplane when they're done with it.
0: Yeah, that's that's right. uh, got to be, I think, one of the, the most remarkable benefits of participating in a build project or building your own airplane is that you're the expert on that airplane, and you're you're the manufacturer of that aircraft for for a good reason.
1: Well, and as, Vic, as you know, I mean, it's reflected in FAA policy. Um, you know, there's a reason why you get the repairment certificate pretty much automatically when you uh, you know, as long as you prove that you're the builder, and that is that the FAA completely defers to you. They they say you built this airplane. You are the final authority on. On how it works mechanically. That's that's the assumption that they go in with because they figure nobody knows that airplane better than you. That's correct. All
0: right. Now, uh, Tom, you've mentioned it, and uh, Vic, you're the, currently the chair of our Homebuilt Aircraft Council. Can you tell us what uh, what does that really mean? What does that mean to the AA membership? That what's the council and your leadership of it?
2: So uh, you know, it's an interesting uh, program that. Uh, I've enjoyed being a part of. I forget how many years now. They all kind of run together. But basically, our role in life is to try and represent, uh, you know, any feedback from the membership back to EAA headquarters. We also, if I look back over the last uh, three or four years, we help influence things like grounds improvement, the whole – uh, EAA homebuilt review area. That finally we got into production this past Air Venture was a big hit, and we're looking forward to this year. We're going to have some really neat programs in that arena. Uh, the things like the flight test manual program, uh, the homebuilt council is very much a part of that. And Started
1: that, that more yeah. than uh, more than a decade ago. Yeah, yeah, and uh,
2: and that directly impacts our membership. Uh, so you know, it's everything from programs to feedback to uh, you know what goes on at Air Venture.
0: And about how many people sit on the council?
2: Right. And we try and keep an odd number, so in case we have to vote. So we, we usually have between five and seven. And, Char- and Charlie Becker is part of that council as well. Ah, gotcha.
0: But, uh, but you're chairman, so you outrank him,
1: right? <laughs>
2: Well, like I tell everybody, yeah, I, yeah, I might have a title, but uh, Ham, I feel like I'm one person and should only be one person, one vote on the council. And uh, we actually all get along pretty well. And, uh, and all the time I've been there, we've ever, actually never had to bring anything to a vote. Everybody's usually pretty much thinking along the same lines.
0: So you're so. a good guy, but a terrible dictator. Yes. what, I, what I get from <laughs> That's that.
2: probably it. <laughs> Yeah,
1: and, and I'll just say for my part, Vic. I mean, we, I've worked very closely with the HAC since I've been here. Um, you know, HACs had a ton of input into a bunch of the stuff that we've done in the in the advocacy department, from the additional pilot program to uh, obviously uh, what was once called XP three, what's now called the uh, EA flight test manual. Right. Um, and of course, all the conversations we've been having uh, with uh, with Mosaic and uh, and the future of future of home building.
0: Uh, Tell me quickly, Tom, about XP3. That that sounds like a really cool secret code name. Did that stand for something?
1: Well, so you know it now as the EA Flight Test right. Manual. Right. Um, but it just was, how did we
0: get from from uh, XP3 to so to that?
1: There's going to be somebody listening who probably knows the full story to this, and I I will apologize and just offer as my excuse that I kind of joined the process a little late in its uh, in its development, but. Um, it was originally stood for Experimental Pilot Plane and Performance, ah. so XP3. Uh, and the idea was um, that, and I think we've talked about it on the show before, but essentially that there wasn't really any directly EAA-produced um, advice and guidance on flight testing a home-built aircraft, which right. is an essential part of building it and also probably the mo- some of the riskiest flying that you'll ever do in a, uh, a home built airplane, is the first couple flights. Sure. And of course, the first couple flights is a, uh, as a second uh, or a subsequent owner, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that, that, that evolved over time and that became what's now the EA flight test manual, which, is, uh, uh, which has been a big hit. We've sold in uh, the year, a little more than a year and a half that we've had it on sale, it has sold more than 2,800 copies. Uh, which is significantly more than the number of aircraft that are certified every year so uh, about twice to three times the number so uh, a lot of people are out there using it um, we think it will really we think it has saved lives already and it will continue to uh, and, we're, and um, I guess I'll just continue on that you know, Vic is, is um, very much involved with the development of of our second phase of that uh, which is a separate document that we're making for people who have purchased an amateur-built aircraft, so you go on Barnstormers, you buy, um, you know, a completed RV4 maybe. Uh, before you get into that aircraft and fly it, we're going to have a a full guidance as to uh, how to evaluate your skills for flying that aircraft, how to acquire what's ne- the necessary transition training. Um, and then to go up and fly and evaluate that aircraft safely, because uh, that is, we've identified that as a very high risk area for a lot of people coming out of cer- type-certificated aircraft into amateur-built aircraft. and We want to change that.
0: So, uh, Vic, let's build on that for just a little bit. What would you say? Is there a single most important piece of advice you have for somebody who would be uh, buying a home-built on the secondary market versus building for themselves?
2: Yes, uh, I actually do that quite, quite regularly to the tune of about two to three a week. I'm working with people that are buying airplanes, going out and doing inspections, and, and I give them a, a couple of, you know, pretty pointed areas. First off, don't, don't buy one without a pre-purchase inspection by somebody who really understands that particular aircraft. And that doesn't necessarily mean you go find somebody because they built one. Because there's a good chance if they built one and it had some mistakes and nobody pointed it out, They're not going to see the mistake on this one. Sure. Okay. So you want somebody that's experienced to go do a pre-buy. And then second, go get some transition training. Don't just hop into that airplane. Now, the good thing today is for those who are going to insure their airplanes, insurance companies are helping us with that message. And that is go get some insurance. And, and it's not that there's anything really experimental about our airplanes anymore. But the experimental airplanes, the power to weight performance far exceeds most anything out there in the certified world, unless you're buying some of the top-end aerobatic aircraft. And so the performance, the handling characteristics are going to be a lot different. It's much easier to get into trouble. And we just want people to get some good transition training. And it's not like it's 10 or 15 or 20 hours. It's usually a short program. They'll get through it. And be a much safer pilot. Everybody wins.
0: Everybody wins. That's good advice.
1: Yeah, and Vic, I'll just uh, I'll add a, a quick anecdote to that, that the first time I flew an RV6A in our employee flying club, um, that was the first airplane that I ever flew that was not a Cessna 152 or 172. <laughs> and um, got up to 55 miles an hour. Uh, gave it uh gave the stick about the same amount of pull i would give oh, on a 172 <laughs> for uh, for takeoff rotation and thankfully the first thing i felt after that was my instructor pushing back so
2: <laughs> yeah
0: you know it, it's i i have a, a, a similar story very quickly when i did my Checkout in our RV6A. Um, I had flown RVs a little bit as a kid. because I uh, My neighbor as a kid was Jerry Van Grunsven. Oh, wow. Lived across the airstrip from us. But it, it had been, you know, 30 years since I'd, I'd touched one. And uh, so I was doing the checkout, and everything was going great, flying with, with one of our staff instructors. And, you know, it's just just one of those flights where you feel like you're, you're ahead of the airplane most of the time, and everything's smooth, and he's being very complimentary how well it's going. Feeling good about it. Then we go to do the first stall. And uh, I I like to say that I I invented a method of stall recovery called the outside loop Um, (laughs) in that, again, small movements, gentle, smooth. I'm just Mr. Finesse the whole flight. You know, pull back, pull back, pull back, airplane breaks in the stall, and I go full forward. Oh, gee. full forward on the stick nice aggressive quick push to uh to break the stall and, and suddenly as i said you know the instructor is is laughing so hard he's crying as as his pen and wallet and keys are floating <laughs> around the cabin in front of our eyes and you know it feels like we're going straight down and you know it feels like we're going to go right into an outside loop and you know so i sort of calmed down and you know slowly recover we had plenty of outlets and everything and And I said, I bet you'd want to see that again, wouldn't you? And he said, not like that, but yeah, let's do it again. And that's when I realized that, okay, that the little two finger half inch movement that you've been doing for every other regime of the flight is also enough to recover from the stall. You don't need that much forward pressure. But anyway, they, uh, uh, they're such fun, fun, fun airplanes. Um, so how many RVs have you built in total?
2: Uh, total RVs have been five. five. I think a total of 11 airplanes. So I've built a four, a six, a seven, an eight, uh, and two tens. <laughs>
0: two tens, just in case.
2: Just in case. All right.
0: <laughs> in case one gets dirty I guess I don't know that is that's terrific uh, well um, as we're getting uh, as we're getting closer to the end here Vic I do uh, I want to ask you a bit about uh, about the writing side of your career because that's where uh, you and I intersect the most professionally um, so how did you first start uh, start writing about the topic of experimentals and home
2: builds? you know I got a call from Paul die one day yeah. and Paul said can you write I said, I, I think so. Let me find my box of Korans. <laughs> and so I, I just started writing and uh it seems to have worked out, which is uh if we have a minute I'll tell you a very funny story. Sure. You know, being I was all about the uh sciences going to school and, and, and uh not so much the arts and so you get into college and you got these English courses that are requirements and didn't exactly excite me and and uh so one week I had to turn in a uh synopsis of a little story we were supposed to read and write our opinion on it. And back then, typewriters, Tom, you can look those up on Google. (laughs) So we had to write a three-page, double-spaced, typewritten report, mark it up, and then rewrite it so that we corrected it. And uh, make a long story short, I got that done in an hour the night before it was due because I really wasn't interested. And it came back with an F on it, which I, I thought I deserved. Okay. But I was also paying for my own college at $75 a credit hour back then. And I decided, you know, I at least did some work. Maybe I should go talk to the prof and see if I can get a D, right? And so uh, I did go talk to him after class and asked him, why the F? And he looked right at me and said, because you plagiarized it. And first, I didn't know what that word meant. So I had to ask to explain that. And uh, I said, no, honestly, I I didn't do that. now I'm caught. I couldn't very well explain to him that I really didn't care for his class, and I only spent an hour last night right. on this thing in my basement at home, and he thought I plagiarized it. So anyway, it was a long two weeks waiting for him to correct and grade it, and it came back with an A-. He said he had to give me oh. an A, but he still didn't trust me. He knew I plagiarized it. <laughs> and so it was just that good. <laughs> yeah, and the next thing I don't know about that, but the next thing I ever wrote was when I finished uh, the RV4, Jack Cox. Uh, I submitted an article to Jack's Strawberry Tabs, and uh, that article got published in Sport Aviation. So, um, prior to that, and uh, Paul Dye, there wasn't anything in between. So it's just that's it's uh, interesting.
0: <laughs> you you know you really caught my attention there for a minute, thinking, well. That, uh, you know only the best for columnists in sport aviation who you know who, who get F's on their papers <laughs> exactly and then yada 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 next thing you know you're writing for us but uh, <laughs> no, that's that's terrific that it was that it was solid enough that uh, uh, it worked and um, you certainly had quite a following at kit planes and as you've uh, as you've uh, taken your checkpoints column and and sort of reinvented it as part of sport aviation you know nothing but terrific feedback so far and uh, I, I shouldn't say this because I'll, I'll jinx us, but uh, but you have been consistently ahead of schedule. So uh, so that that college kid back there on his typewriter doing it the night before, you've you've learned a thing or two since then.
2: Well, that was prior to our summit meeting, and I got all these action items in the last couple of days. <laughs> ah, I see. So now
0: now we're going to be uh, hounding you every month.
2: I'll try and not let that happen. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: Well, I was about to say, it's a good thing a couple people, some people are handing stuff in early. He's making up for me. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah, and our producer, Ty, is laughing hard at that because you uh, you provide him some content for, uh, for the advocacy part of the magazine every month. Late. <laughs> Late. <laughs>
1: but hopefully good quality.
0: <laughs> Ty gave you a begrudging thumbs up. All right. Well, I think we're uh, just about to the end of it here. So, uh, Vic, goodness, thanks so much, uh, not only for taking the time to join us and coming on the show today, taking time out of your schedule, but, of course, for all that you do for EAA. Your your role in the Home Built uh, Aircraft Council is entirely a voluntary position. Uh, So you give so much of your time there. You gave time to come to the summit and uh, uh, supporting uh, us uh, here at headquarters, supporting the members uh, out across the country. uh, It means a great deal
2: thank you it's my 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 turn in life to give back
0: ah, that's that's great that's great to hear so with that uh, uh, we will give uh, give back to the listener we'll give you some of your time back and wrap this up that was a strange little segue
2: yeah
0: some work some don't sometimes they land sometimes sometimes they don't at all but with that thanks everybody as always for listening uh thank you for the uh, the the continued uh, feedback that keeps coming in thank you for those great reviews i do apologize i was going to note the uh, names of our most recent reviewers on uh, itunes because uh, that seemed to go over well last time i will catch uh, catch everybody up next time we do the show but uh, keep the reviews coming keep the feedback coming uh, feedback at ea.org you can always comment on the episodes as they go live at our blog inspired IDA.org. And it, uh, I, I say it every time, but it's absolutely true. The only reason that, uh, that we're able to take the time to continue to put this show together uh, is because of the great responses we get from people, uh, both, the, uh, both the compliments and the constructive feedback as well. So thank you again for listening. Thanks for keeping the good words coming. And we'll catch up with you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green dot.